Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from where? That's right, beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I hope that you are all doing well, at least best as you can in this crazy, crazy world we live in right now. So, I last left off taking you on a tour of 22 Lesseur rhymed and didn't mean to or poet didn't know it the house gave away just not the horrors inside but another look inside of his mind through his art the house was full of treasures and precious consumables he had hordes of medications most notably narcotics i have my suspicions that he was a drug addict himself and it's no surprise that he was in fact selling the narcotics illegally he said he had set up a detox clinic to help addicts withdraw. The clinic was up on Rue Comartin. He had at least 100 patients. He was seen as a compassionate doctor who cared for the drug addicted and treated them by giving them smaller and smaller doses until they no longer needed the drug. His clinic was very busy. There was a specialized department of the police force called the Brigade Montien. The department dealt with prostitution, pornography, and drugs. Petio had illegally acquired a large file that had inside information on himself from the police. This kept him one step ahead of the investigation. No one knows how he was able to get his hands on this. Remember, he was charming and manipulative. He was rich and a drug dealer. Those things might have helped him to be able to bribe the police and other high-ranking officials. One of Petio's patients was Jean-Marc Van Bever and his girlfriend, Jeanette Gall. They were buying heroin from Petio, and they were under investigation by the police, and the trail led to Petio. So now he was under suspicion. Being aware of this, he refused to have any more dealings with Van Bever and Gall. During the pressure of the police interrogation, Van Bever tells the police that he was not a drug addict and that Petio knew this. He was getting the prescription for his girlfriend, Jeanette. So Petio knew Van Bevere was not a drug addict, but he was still prescribing the opiate to him anyway. This was proof that Petio was not running a clinic for drug addicts. He was simply a drug dealer. If Petio was arrested and found guilty, he would lose his license and possibly go to prison. The preliminary trial for this was set for May 26, 1942. Two months before the trial, Van Bevere disappeared. He went out one night to meet with someone and never returned. On March 26, 1942, two letters apparently written by Van Bevere were received at Jeanette Gall's lawyer's office. The first letter, addressed to Jeanette Gall's lawyer, said that he no longer needed the services of his own lawyer. Why would he not have sent the letter to his own lawyer? The second letter was addressed to Jeanette, and it was peculiar. It read as follows. Quote, you know that Dr. Petio examined me in the next room. The proof is that he saw the scabs of hypos. If I made false statements, it was to get temporary freedom to make a new life for myself somewhere else. We will meet on your release to try to make a new life together, far from all the filth. I kiss you warmly. End of quote. So why would he have confessed this in a goodbye letter? 
and Van Bever's lawyer did not believe that these letters were written by him. He suspected Petio was involved in his disappearance. Van Bever was never found. Jeanette Gall received a fine and six months in prison. She was let out after three months and died of tetanus from a dirty needle. Petio got off scot-free. However, soon after he was implicated in a second narcotics case. It was almost identical to the first one. He stuck to the same story that he was running a drug rehab clinic. This time, it involved 28-year-old Raymond Baudet. She tried to pass off a fraudulent prescription written by Petio. The pharmacist reported her to the police, and she was taken into custody. Petio was being implicated again, and he was able to get off with no charges once again. Now let's get back to the investigation. Masu was an excellent investigator, way ahead of his time. He did not believe in jumping to conclusions. He was cautious and worked at a slower pace and gathered evidence piece by piece. He didn't take things at face value. If something seemed too obvious or simple, he would look deeper. He felt that most of the time cases were investigated superficially, which led to many errors. He interrogated people in a calm and friendly manner, offering them a glass of wine or coffee, making sure that they were comfortable. He wanted them to drop their guard, and he felt he had a better chance of extracting the truth. He did not believe in torture and threats. He felt that the person being investigated or interrogated would give false answers in order to stop the torture. Besides, he was not that kind of person. He was intelligent and thoughtful. As you recall, March 12, 1944, is when the grisly discovery at 22 Lesur was found. On March 13, 1944, a woman came forward to the police. Masu took her statement. Quote, I should have been killed this afternoon at 3 o'clock. She had seen Petio for a sore wrist. After the examination, he suggested that she get an x-ray or special treatment at his other office at 22 Lesur. She had a very bad feeling about him. She described him as creepy, and she did not want to go to the other location. When she heard about what happened, she went directly to the police station. She realized that she could have been one of his last victims. Masu and another officer went to the address that was named on the note that was pinned on the door of 22 Lesur. Masu noticed that there was another address on the note that had been crossed out. They had two locations now that they could investigate and hopefully find him. The first one was 18 La Rue de Lombard Auxerre. The second was 55 Rue de Pont Auxerre. When they arrived at the property at 56 Rue de Pont, they found out that it was actually not owned by Marcel, but rather his brother Maurice. Maurice, like his brother, also owned other properties. The apartment had an electronic shop on the main floor, which was Maurice's business and him and his wife and two kids lived above the shop. Maurice's wife was 31-year-old Monique, and their children were 13-year-old Ghislaine and 8-year-old Daniel. There was also a third child living there, and it was Marcel and Georgette's son, Gerard. Masu searched the home with the permission of Monique, and she politely answered his questions. They asked if she would take them to the other property that Maurice owned at 18 La Rue de Labarde. It was a small chateau on top of the hill, and it was quite extravagant. The police wondered how Maurice could afford such a property. He only owned a small electronic shop that would not fund such a purchase. The property was uninhabited, 
And just like the property at Lesseur, it was dusty and messy with expensive furniture and artwork scattered everywhere. As they investigated the house, they found a small bedroom that looked as if someone was inhabiting it. And it turns out that a businessman friend stayed there from time to time, as he did a lot of traveling. His name was Albert Newhausen. He said that he last saw Marcel Petillot on March 11th. Not only was Petillot missing, his wife Georgette could not be located either. On Tuesday, March 14th, she was found at the Auxerre station waiting to board the train. She was approached by a police officer, and she immediately said to him, I have done nothing wrong. And then she collapsed on the platform. Standing with her was her 16-year-old son, Gerard. She had to be carried out of the station, sobbing all the way. Meanwhile, Maurice was also being taken into custody. Back at 22 Lesur, the grave diggers continued to sift through the human remains. They placed bones and decaying limbs from the pit into wooden boxes shaped like coffins. They transported these remains to the Institute Metallurgicals Forensic Laboratory. I hope I'm saying that right. This laboratory was considered one of the best in France. The chief medical examiner was Dr. Albert Paul, and he was considered one of the best forensic scientists of his time. Dr. Paul helped capture one of the worst serial killers in French history, Henri Landru. Landru robbed and killed and then burned the bodies of wealthy women. Dr. Paul determined the way that Landru had burned these victims' parts, and it was in his kitchen stove. It helped him to investigate the Petio case, and here's a quote from him. Quote, a right foot disappears in 15 minutes, a half skull with brains taken out in 36 minutes, the whole skull in about an hour and 10 minutes. The most difficult to dispose of were the trunk and thorax, possibly explaining why the murderer at La Rue Sur chopped up the bodies before feeding them to the fire. End of quote. Dr. Paul was also known as the doctor of 100,000 autopsies. He put together a crack team of talented forensic scientists. Professors Leon de Robert and René Pierre-Livre came from the Museum of Natural History in Paris. They were specialists in the area of reconstructing fossil remains. You can imagine how valuable they were. They were given the steep task of identifying the mutilated remains, and they had to match up the body parts and try to determine the number of victims and their age, gender, and maybe the cause of death. Here's a quote from Dr. Paul. They had to, quote, sort through a heap of bones, craniums, shin bones, ribs, fingers, kneecaps, and teeth on a large marble table that were three garbage cans full. The collection of hair alone weighed 11 pounds. It was not an autopsy. It's a puzzle with many missing pieces. End quote. The press was going wild. They swarmed 22 Lesur and the police station, along with hundreds and at times thousands of onlookers. Masu interrogated Georgette Petio. She said that she knew of the house at 22 Lesur, but had only been there twice. She said that Petio bought it for his ever-growing medical practice. She said that he had done all the renovations himself. When asked about the cart and bicycle, Georgette said he used it for the purchases from the auction houses, even though he had a car. She said her husband was, quote, a very gentle man who took care of his family, his patients adored him, and if they were poor and unable to pay, he would not charge them, end quote. He asked her about March 11, 1944. She said that her husband spent the morning making house calls and that they ate lunch together. He left again at 3 to 3.30, but didn't tell her where he was going. And then he came home for dinner at 6 p.m. 
He got a call from the police about the chimney fire. He left after that, and she hadn't seen him since. She said that she was boarding the train to go home, not to go on the run. Georgette said she was afraid that he was being arrested by the Gestapo and therefore terrified to contact the police. Commissioner Massou wondered about Georgette's intentions. Was she trying to escape? Was she truly frightened for the reasons that she stated? Or did she know where her husband was? Massou interrogated Maurice next. Although the Petio brothers had been very close, they had a falling out after Maurice was married to Monique in 1934. They didn't speak again until 1940. Maurice then set out to mend his relationship with Marcel. He said that Marcel didn't tell Maurice about the property at 22 Le Sur until 1942. Maurice denied knowing anything about the horrendous murders taking place there. And he told Massou that he had never visited there before. And this, of course, was a lie. Not only had he been there many times, he had delivered large quantities of lime and coal to the mansion. After the interrogation, he visited the doctor's home at 22 Colmartin in Auxerre. He went to search the apartment and asked Georgette more questions. The apartment was furnished with expensive furniture, tapestries, and fine porcelain. And she described her life with Marcel. She said that they had gone to the theater often, but many times Marcel would have to leave in the middle of the performance saying that he had sick patients to see. She admitted that she had been surprised when he brought home fine linens and jewels, but he explained that he bought them at auctions. Massou decided to take Georgette to Hotel Dieu, one of the oldest hospitals in Paris. The hospital had rooms for important witnesses in criminal trials. He wanted to keep her away from all the reporters, photographers, and crowds. He hoped that he would be able to watch her closely and that she might lead him to Marcel. He was also concerned that she might attempt suicide. Meanwhile, the examination of the overwhelming evidence found at 22 Le Sueur continued. They wanted to identify the owner of a black satin dress that was found in the basement. The tag on the inside of the dress identified the designer as Sylvie Gourondet. She remembered the dress and said it was made for a prostitute by the name of Paulette, who worked at a nearby brothel. Her real name was Josephine Amy Grippet. The brothel was upscale, and most of the customers were German soldiers. The top floor of the seven-story brothel was for those who liked to participate in S&M. It had a torture chamber with whips and chairs and other items of bondage. So how did Petion know Paulette? Well, he was her drug dealer. He had many patients and clients in the red light district. And this was located in the heart of the entertainment district, with many bars, clubs, burlesque shows, and restaurants. It seemed that most of the people from the brothel and the surrounding neighborhood knew of Petio and his drug dealing business. They said it was very easy to buy illegal drugs like heroin and cocaine from him. His clientele was mostly female. Here's a quote from an unnamed prostitute. Quote, we were a little afraid of him. He always asked for tricks that we did not like or did not know sometimes. Then he would explain it to us with a funny laugh. He was often rough and liked to bite or pinch nipples with all his might. End quote. Not only did he deal drugs, he also treated the hazards of the trade, venereal disease. So this is how he knew Paulette. Dr. Pied Livre was the forensic expert who was working on the Petio case. In the 45 years of his job, he had never seen anything like this. He recalls the first trip to the House of Horrors. He tripped on what he thought was a small stone in the backyard, but it was in fact a fragmented vertebrae of a human. He continued to walk through human debris, dust and bones. He was quoted as saying, quote, portions of scalp with their hair completely impregnated by foul magma, end quote. 
The worst, he said, was in the drainage pit at the back of the carriage house. He saw a gruesome scene of mangled bodies, quote, cooped together like herring partially burned by lime, which lightens them like sparrows, end quote. Do Parisians say everything like it's a poem? <laughs> everything, it's everything I've read that they quote sounds like a tragic poem or a type of, you know, lyrical sentence. Anyway, the bodies were dissected and dismembered by a skilled professional, like a butcher or a doctor. What the forensic scientists and the coroner and the medical examiner were asked to do was beyond complicated, extreme, and tedious. They were trying to reconstruct bodies that were in different states of decomposition. They had to sort through scalp skulls, dismembered body parts, and rotting flesh. The task seemed impossible. They focused on bones such as the pelvis and femur, which would help them determine if the victim was male or female. And like what Dr. Paul said before, important pieces of the puzzle were missing. There were no murder weapons to be found. The state of the bodies couldn't help determine what the cause of death was. There was no bloodstains, smears, splashes, or traces that could be found. All the victims were disemboweled, therefore eliminating the chance to find traces of poison. There was no evidence of bullet wounds, knife wounds, or blunt force trauma. There were fractures and dismemberment, but they could have happened after death. Masoon knew that he had to find a witness or witnesses. Even a tiny bit of information could be critical. Maurice was interrogated a second time, and here is an excerpt from the interrogation. Masu. Contrary to your claim, you have sent certain products or materials to the property at Rulesur. Would you explain? Maurice, if I have sent any materials, it is for you to prove it. Masu. You have sent some, including lime. Maurice, it is for you to prove. Masu. Have you ever seen any lime on the property at Rulesur? Maurice. No, I have never seen any there. End quote. He asked Maurice where he was on February 19th, and Maurice stated that he had spent the day at home. The thing is that Masu already knew the truth. A truck driver by the name of John Eustache, he had already contacted the police about some information that they might find helpful. He did this when he heard of the murders, and he knew that the delivery of the lime was significant. He told police on February 19, 1944, he and a co-worker picked up Maurice in a truck and drove him to a quarry where he picked up 400 kilograms of quicklime and delivered it to 22 Lesur. They unloaded it into the courtyard. Maurice told the driver it was being used to whitewash the property. Eventually, Maurice relented and admitted to the delivery, but said he didn't go into the house, even though he stated that he had given the house key back to his brother that day. Why would he need a house key if he was not going to enter the home? Maurice was now to be held in jail. The police searched both of Maurice's properties, but they found nothing suspicious. Masu was convinced that Maurice knew where his brother was. Masu and his team were tracking down more leads. They continued to meticulously inspect the House of Horrors. Most of the efforts had gone into the pit, but they now focused on one room in particular, the small triangular room, also known as the torture chamber. The wallpaper had been removed to see if it unveiled anything sinister, like a hidden passageway or a secret room. It did not. Masu knew in his heart that this room was being used as a torture chamber. Remember, there were iron hooks on the walls, and it was soundproof. It was dark and it had a metal cot. It also had a hole in the wall with a viewing lens in it. He studied the LumaVisor viewer. 
Masu asked his secretary to stand in the room while he viewed through the lens on the other side. He had to stand on a heater that was against the wall, but it was the perfect height for him to look through the lens. He was able to get a good view of the room, and in particular where the iron hooks were. Masu believed that Petio would watch his tortured victims suffer and die. He hypothesized that Petio would take the victims' bodies to the kitchen workstation, where he likely scalped, disemboweled, and dismembered them. There were two large deep sinks joined by a draining table. The table was stained a brownish red, and the wall behind these sinks was tiled. Water would drain across the board into a second sink, and there was also a container inside that sink. The drains led to a sewer. Forensic scientist Dr. Paul commented that in 1942 to January 1943, arms, legs, and torsos were being dropped in packages around Paris and washing up in the Seine River. The first was found on May 17, 1942. A trunk had been pulled out of the river under a bridge. Inside was a body of a 45 to 50-year-old man. The body showed no other signs of premortal injury. It was also believed that the dismemberment had to be someone with medical training. Five more trunks were found around Paris, and they contained hands without fingertips, feet without toenails, the skin of the legs and feet. There were also scalps and a chest wall, a left ear with part of the skin of the face attached, and the point of the nose, a penis with the testicles, an entire face mask with the nose, mouth, lips, and both ears attached. Clearly, a skilled surgeon was doing this. Other body parts and trunks bound with ropes continued to appear in the Seine River. These parts appeared to coincide with the cases with the scalps, skin, and body parts. These parts were missing their scalps, and faces were peeled away, and fingertips removed. One case carried parts of the human remains, and the other case carried parts of the same person's remains. It was done with such skill and precision that Dr. Paul was concerned that it was one of the doctors on his staff. He discovered something else that only a medical examiner would know. Quote, We forensic scientists are in the habit in a dissection of not passing our scalpel on the table of operation when we stop in the middle of our work, but stick it in the thigh of a cadaver. End quote. He found these marks on the human remains of many corpses. He said that he found the same marks on some of the remains of the dead found in the pit at 22 Le Sueur. Dr. Paul believed that the sick murderer of the victims found around Paris and the victims of 22 Le Sueur were one and the same. With this information, Massou saw the case become even bigger and even more complicated than it already was. Massou was surprised by the German authorities' lack of interest, especially since Petiot had not been apprehended yet. The German officers had not interfered with the investigation to date, but they did have something very big and important to add to the case. The Gestapo had a large file on Petio, and they handed it over to Massou. He was shocked. The German secret police had been quietly investigating Petio for being part of the French resistance. The French resistance would, among other things, operate an underground system to help Jewish people escape Nazi-occupied France to a country that was safe for them to live. Petio did have involvement with the French resistance, and he was also involved in helping Jewish people escape France. Raoul owned a hair salon. He was a hairdresser and a wig maker. Edmund was a former cabaret performer and a makeup artist. Although they did have a healthy business, the store was also used as a front to help Jewish people escape France. Edmund Pintard would go to the bars, cafes, and nightclubs and quietly look for people wanting to escape. 
Those interested were told to see Raoul at the salon where arrangements would be made. Fourier and Petard were working under Marcel Petiot. They would gather all the information necessary and send them to Dr. Petiot. Petiot would meet with them and would set a date for their departure. He would ask them to meet him at his office at 22 Le Sur. The cost for his services was astronomical, equaling up to $1 million in today's currency. Petiot did not use his real name, though. He used the alias Dr. Eugene. This kind and compassionate doctor smuggled Jewish people out of occupied France through the mountains of the Free Zone, then to Spain, where they would be put on a ship to Argentina. He would provide them with false passports and travel documents. All of this information led the Gestapo to 22 Rue de Martin, Petiot's home office, and then Petiot was arrested. Also arrested was Raoul and Edmond and Petiot's friend René Nédesanné. They were all taken to the Gestapo headquarters in Paris, and this was a terrifying place that frightened even some of the officers that worked there. Those who were arrested did not escape the tortures and sometimes murders that took place. Those being held in custody would go through a brutal interrogation for days at a time. They would have holes drilled in their teeth. They would put their skulls in a vise and crush them. They were being stripped naked, hung by their ankles and submerged headfirst into icy water until they were unconscious. They would be revived and then submerged again and again. The males would have their testicles crushed. They would have electrical currents running through their hands and feet and ears or attached to the rectum with the other end attached to the penis. Petio confessed that he worked for the Martinazzi organization, part of the French resistance. Petio was detained for eight months, which was unusual because most of the prisoners never left. They were either murdered or kept until after the war. So why was Petio so lucky? It was reported by a fellow inmate, including his friends, that Petio was often very rude and belligerent to the German police. Considering what went on inside its walls, why would Petio behave this way? Why did he not fear for his life? There were never any repercussions for his behavior, and he was eventually released. Petio must have had some deal with the Gestapo. Money, information, drugs. It would never be known. Moving forward, the search was still on for Petio. The sick truth of what he had been doing was slowly being revealed. Petio was in fact working with the French resistance, but he was not in the French resistance. He worked under the assumed name that I had mentioned before. Fourier and Petard thought Petio was in charge of the resistance in that area of France, but he wasn't. He managed to convince these well-meaning men that he had been working for the resistance. And this was what was really happening. Like I said before, Marcel Petiot created the alias Dr. Eugène. He ingratiated himself into the French resistance. It was the perfect opportunity to get victims. So think about it. It was during the war when Germany occupied France. People were terrified, and they were hiding or trying to live under the radar. People went missing, especially Jewish people. Jewish people were being sent to concentration camps, where they were being tortured, murdered, or worked to death. Most of the citizens of Paris did not want to be involved in anything. They wouldn't talk, and they acted blind and deaf to anything that would get them into trouble, and there was a lot that could get them into trouble. They kept their heads down and went about their lives quietly. The French resistance was in full force, so a lot of attention was being put on them or anyone thought to be actually involved with them. So this was so sick. Petiot preyed on Jewish people and their vulnerability, 
He pretended to be a part of the organization in order to rein in victims. He gave them hope of escape. The sick cruelty is that they thought they were escaping almost certain death or torture only to fall victim to death and torture. They placed their hopes and future in his hands. He stole their life and profited from them in death. He was doing exactly what the Gestapo was doing. He must have enjoyed a sick and cruel pleasure from this. He learned about Pintard and Fourier. He convinced them that he was an important figure in the French resistance. He told them that he would arrange passage. They would send the people to him. He created the alias of a caring physician who wanted to help him. He played this caring role right down to the smallest detail. And as you know, the devil's in the details. Because of the charade, he was trusted. It also made him invisible in the eyes of the Gestapo. His fee was anything from 250000 to $1 million. He instructed the Jewish people to sew money and jewels into their jacket linings or clothes. He also told them to pack a piece of luggage with what they would need and nothing more, like toiletries and a change of clothes. They would arrive at his home at a specified time, usually late between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., and in short time, he would lure them to the basement to begin his torture. This is when he likely asked his victims to write letters to their families about their voyage and safe arrival and sometimes an apology letter of abandonment. He was setting up the perfect scenario of their arrival, and then he would send these letters to family members. He would eventually send a final letter to say that they were going forward by themselves or to join them so that he could get even more victims, or a letter he crafted himself reporting their unfortunate death from some illness or tragedy. This would cover up their disappearance. It was never proven how he killed his victims, but it was believed that he poisoned or subdued them with narcotics and then tortured and murdered them. What was blatantly clear was that he murdered and dismembered and disemboweled and burned their bodies and threw them in a pit. He would do this over and over until he was caught. It was estimated that he had at least 50 victims and as many as 100. Dr. Paul tied the bodies scattered in the trunks all over Paris to the victims at 22 Le Sur, like I said before. It was not only Jewish people he preyed on, but also drug-addicted prostitutes. And not only were his sick and twisted needs quenched, but he also became very wealthy. He would convince the victims to store their furniture and art with him so that he could keep it in a safe place until they could collect it. They even handed over keys to their homes and safes. The corpses piled up at such a rate that he couldn't dispose of them fast enough. And that's what got him caught the burning of the bodies for five days straight. There was no way that his brother and his wife didn't know what was going on, at least to some extent. He spent eight months in prison. During this time, somehow bribed and extorted his way out. How many lives were spared during this time? He was released and went right back to his demented ways. I wonder if he went into some kind of frenzy because he couldn't kill or torture in this eight months. I wonder if his diabolical nature took over. It had been quite a while since his name was in the newspaper because of the war. An article was written for the newspaper Resistance by resistance fighter Jacques Jean that led to a big break in the case. Petiot's narcissistic nature took over. The article was titled Petiot, Soldier, Third Reich. Petiot sent a long rebuttal letter to the newspaper the handwriting was consistent with Petiot's, and the letter deemed genuine. It began like this, quote, Dear Mr. Editor, all accused persons should be considered innocent until proven guilty. 
because of law and justice, I have the right to defend myself and to ask you to print my answer. End of quote. He then went on to criticize the police, saying that they had sick imaginations and worthless claims. He said he fought valiantly against the Nazis. He said his code name was Dr. Eugene and his code number was 46, and they worked for a fictional network called Fly Talks. Of course, he just made all this up. He ended the letter with this, quote, The author of these lines, far from having committed dishonorable acts, far from having forgiven his torturers, and further from having helped them adopt a new pseudonym immediately after his release from the German prison and asked for a more active role, in order to avenge the hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen killed and tortured by the Nazis. He always remained in contact with his friends and fought for the liberation to the best of his abilities, despite the dangers that his actions may have caused him. He still contributes as much as possible to the liberation and apologizes if you cannot take time to follow the polemic more closely. Having lost everything except his life, he is risking even more, that even under a false name, scarcely hoping that tongues and pens now freed from their shackles will tell the truth so easy to guess and forget that the clumsy kraut lies that require only a sou of French common sense to see through, end of quote. He had spoken in third person. So do you think he believed his own crap or was he speaking in third person because he psychologically removed himself from his persona? The police were obviously thrilled. They had proof that he was alive. It also gave them a lead on his whereabouts. The envelope's postmark showed that the letter had been mailed in Paris, possibly the capital. On October 31, 1944, Marcel Petio was captured at the railway station. It was seven months and 20 days since he fled. He was wearing a khaki uniform with a French military cap and a free French resistance armband, and he had a full beard. Petio was ambushed by four men. One of the men kicked him in the groin, and the other three took him down. They blindfolded, gagged, handcuffed him, and bound his feet. On him was a loaded revolver, 31,000 francs, and a whole bunch of false identity cards, and blank documents, and search warrants, and orders of arrest. He also had a Communist Party identity card. He had many ration cards under different names, and one was for a young boy. He had an arsenal of documents on him, mostly to hide his identity and get food and others that could cause a lot of trouble, like fake arrests, for one. The man that arrested him was an ex-officer and captain in the French resistance, Georges Simon, and he was taken to the Rouli Armory. He was then handed over to the police. Now, I want to talk about Commissioner Massou. After the Nazi occupation, they cleaned out the police force. 1,200 officers were let go. Many were arrested and charged with various war offenses. Massou was one of them. He was charged with collaboration with the enemy, sharing information, and deportation of Jewish women. He was considered a collaborator, which was untrue, and he was robbed of the opportunity to arrest Petio. Massou was so depressed that he slit his wrists. He was rushed to the hospital and recovered. Eventually, all charges were dropped, and this was a disastrous end to a decorated career. Massou's successor was Lucien Pennell. Moving forward, Petio had a preliminary trial to determine if there was a case. He hired René Floriot as his lawyer. He was considered an excellent young lawyer with a promising career ahead of him. This pretrial took a whopping four months, 
and the actual trial started on March 18, 1946. Now, I could go into detail about the trial, and that would take up probably two more episodes. I thought I might serve you better by summing the trial up. The coverage of this trial was insane. There were reporters, photographers, and thousands of people that wanted to sit in the courtroom to witness the trial. Those that couldn't swarmed outside. Famous people like actors and singers and athletes and artists and royalty tried to get a seat in the trial, and they were given preference. Petio loved the audience, and he felt he was the star of the show, and he thrived in this role. Not for a second did he believe he was going to be found guilty. He showboated. He played to his audience. He tried to humiliate the prosecutor and those that testified against him. He tried to disrespect and embarrass the witnesses. At times, he succeeded in making the prosecution and witnesses look like fools, at least in the eyes of the observers. At times, he even had them laughing and cheering for him. There were even moments where it looked like he might even be found innocent. When the trial was over, the jury was asked 135 yes or no questions, five for each of the 27 alleged victims who they were able to identify. Two-thirds majority would suffice for the verdict. On April 4th, after two hours and 15 minutes of deliberation, the court reached its verdict. Petio was found guilty of 26 of the 27 charges of murder. He was acquitted in only one case. He was sentenced to death by guillotine. Petio looked calm and cool, but as he was handcuffed and escorted out of the courtroom, he screamed, I must be avenged. On May 25th, three guards escorted Petio to the inner courtyard of the prison de la Santé. His appeal had been rejected, and he was not going to get a presidential appeal. He had the customary cigarette and a glass of rum. When asked if he had any last words, he said, quote, No, I am a traveler who was taking all his baggage with him. End quote. He was led to the guillotine. His hands were tied behind his back, and they shaved his neck. When they tore his shirt and put his head into the guillotine, he said, quote, A pity, so beautiful a shirt, which cost my wife so much. I think it was a Christmas gift, end quote. Those were his last words. And the last sound Petio heard was the fall of the guillotine's blade. His head was then liberated from his body. So there you have it. The horrific story of Dr. Marcel Petio. One of the worst serial killers, I think, of all time. The reason why I said that I think that I feel that Marcel Petio is as bad, if not worse, than Gosnell was because he took advantage of the Jewish people's terror and desperation for freedom and then turned around and took their lives, tortured them, and stole everything of value which is exactly what was being done in the concentration camps. And if you think about Gosnell, he took advantage of women in desperate situations. And, you know, we know what he did. So yeah, this case was uh, really disturbing. And, uh, yeah, it, it really bothered me a lot because it was in Nazi-occupied Paris and who the victims were. Okay, 
So I hope you enjoyed this series, mini-series, and uh, I look forward to the next ones coming up. I want to thank everybody for your support and for the iTunes reviews. I just got one that, um, it really moved me. Thank you from Dagadi from Australia. And if anyone who has not left a review has time to do one, I'd really appreciate it. Also, I want to give thanks to my new Patreon supporters. Laura Grandmont, Eva, and Tracy Van. Thank you guys so much. Like I've said so many times to everybody that's able to support me through Patreon that I know how hard it is to come across a buck nowadays, and I really appreciate it. Um, it goes a long way. So thank you guys. For those that um, are not on the Facebook group, uh, Shocking Traumas and Treatment Stat, please go check it out. It's a fantastic community there. I just love it. And you're welcome to join. And yeah, that's that's it for now. Thank you so much for all your listenership. And I hope that you're all taking care of yourselves, taking care of one another, and most importantly, loving yourself. Peace. One love. Oh,